My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. And welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Rabia Murtaza. With the arrival of the far right at the center of global politics via its role in Donald Trump's presidential campaign and administration, there has been a sharp increase in hateful incidents and political mobilizing that embody overt and blatant white supremacy. This is not just a problem in the United States. The current moment has brought out the white supremacy that is deeply embedded in Canadian political culture as well. Yet as awful as this development is, it has also triggered an upsurge in anti-racist responses of various kinds, and some people are using it as an opportunity to go beyond challenging hateful incidents and to draw more people into addressing the ways in which the everyday and systemic forms of racism profoundly shape our communities and lives. One of the many ways that blatant white supremacy manifested in the aftermath of last November's U.S. election was white supremacist posters that appeared in Stan Wadlow Park in the east end of Toronto. Many people in the surrounding neighborhood were, not surprisingly, appalled by the posters, and the resulting conversations on social media led to a decision to hold an anti-racism rally in the park. The online mobilizing in the lead-up to the rally, plus the rally itself, created an opportunity for many people with a range of anti-racist politics who live in the neighborhood but who did not previously know each other to connect, to begin building relationships, and to start doing political work together. The group East Enders Against Racism emerged out of these initial conversations. It includes a core group of organizers who meet regularly, about equal parts women of color and white women, and a larger group of supporters who participate in activities when they can, and who remain connected through the 1,800-plus person Facebook group. The goals of the group include actively countering hate, doing community building and community engagement that are family-friendly, and doing a range of kinds of anti-racist educational work. In one respect, the group is a rarity in the Canadian context. It is an anti-racism group that is neighborhood-based. Being neighborhood-based means that, in some ways, the group starts from a bit of a different place than many anti-racism efforts. Rather than coming together on the basis of a shared identity or a fairly tight political affinity, the group brings together people with a wide range of experiences, a wide range of ways of understanding racism, a wide range of kinds and levels of knowledge of the issues, and a wide range of politics. Not surprisingly, this has resulted in the group engaging in a wide range of kinds of activities. A central one, both at in-person events and in the Facebook group, is an ongoing process of discussion and mutual education about racism and anti-racism, and about all of the oppressions and struggles that those intersect with. This may not be very visible work, and it may not be politically glamorous, but this commitment to having hard, ongoing conversations with your neighbors is crucial to what the group is accomplishing. The group has also identified multicultural and anti-racist books, which it is obtaining and donating to elementary and middle schools in the area. They've distributed signs proclaiming United Against Hate and Everyone Belongs in multiple languages throughout the neighborhood. They're figuring out how to connect with a broader cross-section of people and communities that exist in the East End. 
They work to connect people in the neighborhood with anti-racism actions, events, and initiatives happening elsewhere in the city. They've written a number of open letters taking positions on important questions related to racism in the greater Toronto area and beyond. They have a working group that has been strategizing on how to challenge a long-standing white supremacist newsletter that is produced and distributed door-to-door -door in the community. And recently, when they heard that the Toronto police would be hosting a community barbecue in a neighborhood park, they decided to respond by postering the park and then by being present during the barbecue in ways that made prominently visible the message that Black Lives Matter. Rabia Murtaza teaches community work at a community college in Toronto and is a resident of the city's East End. She's been involved in anti-racism work in one way or another for over 20 years, and she's a member of the core organizing group of East Enders Against Racism. She speaks with me about doing anti-racism work in the current moment and about East Enders Against Racism. We spoke by Skype to phone from Toronto. My name is Rabia Mutaza, and I teach community work at a community college in Toronto. I've been teaching for five years and working in the community for 15 before that, and I've also been an activist in various contexts most of that time. I am a member of the East Enders Against Racism group, which has been working together since the fall of last year when white supremacist posters went up in a neighborhood park and we've organized as a response. I think that racism was something I was interested in from like youth and as a young person growing up in Toronto. I had moved to Toronto from Pakistan at 11 after having been born in Canada, and I experienced racism in middle school and didn't like it. And I came from a family that had an analysis about racism and imperialism, actually. So we together had gone to rallies, and I'd learned about these kinds of issues through my mosque community, and I grew into it. So joined youth groups, and we would learn about issues, organize events, and that became my work as I grew older. And I think that one of the key politicizations I experienced was I lived at Jane and Finch, and I would take the bus to a school that had a gifted program that was very good, and the bus trip was, you know, an hour, 20 minutes or something, and I would watch the neighborhood get wealthier and wealthier and the sidewalks get bigger and nicer with fewer cracks and the complexions would grow lighter and people wouldn't be carrying as many heavy bags of groceries or on foot as much. <laughs> and then I would do that in reverse each evening on the way home and it seemed so terrible to me that the gifted program was so far away in a wealthier, wider neighborhood. So these posters were put up anonymously in a park called Stan Wadlow, which is in East York. It's a diverse neighborhood. It's close to what you could call Little Bangladesh. There are many apartment buildings and also many houses. So there's a range of class backgrounds. And these posters were aimed at white people saying, hey, white person. And I think they said something like, do you feel like it's not your country anymore? And they were aimed at, quote unquote, political correctness. And people were disgusted and upset because this was around the time of the American election and there was a great deal of public concern about these open narratives of racism. And it was a moment when a lot of people learned that actually the East End has a history of white supremacist organizing, that there's a group 
which runs a racist newspaper called Your Ward News, and they have an office, and they deliver the newspapers all over the East End and beyond, actually, and that there have been white supremacist people. And there's also a history of organizing against white supremacism in the East End by grassroots people. I think the KKK, there were several homes on a street south of Little India, and the owners were KKK. They would dress up in KKK outfits and put up posters in the 70s and 80s if there was ever a cultural festival in Little India. And residents would respond by taking pictures of that and calling it out and demonstrating in response. So there's a history of both. And this group formed, and a lot of people taught each other that history and are continuing it, I think, of resistance. So in November of 2016, people decided, let's have a rally in Stan Wadlow Park. And it came together through Facebook. Like-minded people connected and said, let's do something, and agreed to form a group. So we started a chat and formed a group, and the group just drew lots and lots of members. At this point, it's over 1,800 members, and at that time, it started and it began growing. And through discussion over social media, residents said, let's organize a rally. I happened to actually be in India at the time. I was there with my family for several months for work, but I supported from afar with the time difference and all. (laughs) And so the people who were physically here went to that park. Over 100 people came. They had a poster-making session, and so they postered the park with lots of messages of inclusion and anti-racism. And the nature of the group became clearer through that first event. That's how we figured out our initial set of goals. The first is countering hate, which is a kind of active stance, because we've learned that there is this hateful element that is also part of our neighborhood. The second is to do community building and community engagement, which is family-friendly. So the rally in the park had dozens of kids. The kids helped make the posters, because that reflects who's interested in doing the resistance. Not exclusively, but many of us are parents of young children. And the third piece is education. So education around anti-racism and how to be an ally. And I would include in that that I think we are all learning how to be more intersectional as well. So what does this work mean when we're also thinking about class and citizenship, status, gender, sexuality, age, abilities? The community itself is really, really, really mixed. So those are the three goals that we work towards. Give me a sense of the membership of EastEnders Against Racism and of how that social media-based outreach was able to reach different corners of the community and maybe how it wasn't necessarily able to reach all of the different corners of the East End community. The East End happens to have a massive and successful group called East Toronto Young Mothers, (laughs) which has evolved a great deal. So it's nowhere near all young people. It's just parents of young children. And they're not all mothers. The membership of that group is, you know, it's 4,000 people. And it's a really quick way to transmit information. But there are dynamics of privilege on all the Facebook groups because not everybody is on Facebook. It assumes a certain level of quickness with typing in English and access to internet and devices. So on the one hand, 
it's flushed out like-minded people. Like, I didn't realize they were all these people with anti-racist politics, often just blocks from me. And I'm now connected to them and friends with them. And, you know, they drop off chocolate when I'm too tired (laughs) to go out myself. People support each other in these amazing ways and run ideas past each other and work together. On the other hand, we do recognize that there is a significant problem that we are primarily reaching out to people on the more privileged end of the continuum. So that's part of our strategic thinking. How do we want to grow? We want to do more solidarity with working class, racialized communities in the East End. There's, as I mentioned before, a solid Bangladeshi community. There's Muslim community that lives close to Medina Masjid. And there have been rallies in support and solidarity, and we've gone to the mosque. But we have to do more along those lines. There are people who are part of our group who are part of Surge, showing up for racial justice. So that's kind of like an ally group. And there's some people who are doing really active countering of the fascist work happening in the city. And then there are people who've never thought of doing that before and who have different strategies. And so they want to talk to their kids more proactively about the diversity in their classroom. And why was it important to the group to do at least some of its community engagement work in family-friendly ways? Partly, it's a reflection of There's a baby boom probably all over the GTA, and it's quite evident in the East End. The schools are overflowing, and the height posters went up in a park, which has got a baseball diamond, a splash pad, a soccer program. It's the entrance to the ravine, so it's a heavily used park by young people. So the need is there and the response is there that a lot of the people who are working on this, many of us are caretakers of young people in many different ways. So if we want this to be a mass project, it has to take into account that people are doing this in a way which involves the young people in their lives, the children, the preteens, the teens. And that's how we kind of strengthen what's happening in the community as well. And it's not exclusively the focus of what we do either. It's one of the goals, but there are two other goals as well. Because, you know, not everyone has kids, of course. So the work of countering hate has several different objectives, including there's a working group looking at working with the city on how to shut down the Your Ward News group. And we have many projects like that. And give some other examples of activities and projects and so on that EastEnders Against Racism has engaged in. So that rally came together, and then at the same time, people brainstormed. So not the core group, but just people in the neighborhood brainstormed. Let's do a book drive for the schools that circle that park. Like there are five, six neighborhood schools very close to that park, elementary schools and middle schools. And so we researched a list of well over 100 books, which speak to these themes and also feature kids of many different backgrounds and skin colors and abilities. And either they explicitly address inclusion and anti-racism or they just have protagonists who are of different backgrounds. We fundraised for these books and we've now collected a couple hundred of them and we've been distributing them to the neighborhood librarians in these elementary schools and doing an assembly each time we drop off a package of books and somebody will read out from the books to the young people. 
around that time as well, a young person in Hamilton named Noah experienced hate violence and was beaten up in a hate crime. And people in the neighborhood got together and they wrote letters of support to send to him. One of the core offline things we've done is we made these signs that on one side they say everyone belongs and on the other side they say united against hate and we translated them into six, seven languages based on the top dominant languages in the neighborhood and there are probably at this point over a thousand of them all over the East End and we're planning on making them into a window decal as well and also inviting businesses to put them up. A lot of what we do is the moderating of the Facebook group, so ongoing education, encouraging people to attend rallies with each other, and helping people brainstorm how to take care of themselves and be at a rally, how to respond if they witness racism happening. So, for example, recently it emerged that somebody in the neighborhood has a little statue in their front yard, which is a black person holding a lantern. And somebody raised it in the Facebook group, and it turns out that a lot of people didn't realize how racist those are. So neighborhood people who were white had perceived those as being neutral or even perhaps related somehow to the fact that there was an underground railroad in Toronto and there were stops in the East End, like safe houses. So that was a really important education piece to talk about the racism of the story the anti-black racism of the story of the person who holds the lantern so long that they die overnight because they're so loyal to their owner. So that's kind of an example of something that recently came from the Facebook group. We've done a series of open letters. So we've primarily focused on the neighborhood in the East End. There are many neighborhoods in the East End, and we are centered in those. And when issues come up that apply to the broader GTA, we write open letters. We've done a survey of who receives the Your Award News deliveries, so who are the residents who receive it in their mailbox, and we've raised awareness when one of the Your Award News people goes door-to-door pretending that he's fundraising money for a jazz festival, and people don't realize that it's actually going towards a white supremacist group, and so we've sent out that information, and people have you know, found ways to cancel their checks, etc., So those are some examples of what we've done. And it's a volunteer group. And so what we're working on is clarifying what we want to do and how we would do it. So how do we respond every time there's a hate rally at City Hall when we're all very busy? Many of us are working full time and managing lots of different things. So how do we respond in a way and support people to respond in a way that's sustainable? Tell me more about the practicalities of how the group functions. So we try to have a series of in-person gatherings fairly frequently. I think there's a balance of online and offline work happening. Like There are many physical, tangible things that we're doing, and then there's also the online work. So there's, first and foremost, the big 1,800-member Facebook group, and then there's a smaller core group of organizers. One of the immediate urgent things we're working on is, so the core group is probably about half white women and half women of color, and we're all cis and coming from a range of abilities, disabilities, some queer, some straight, not all parents, and I think that we urgently need more indigenous and black voices in that smaller group to address 
the needs of the neighborhood and the importance of those perspectives. We also have a lot of supporters, including people who are Indigenous and Black, but who don't have time to be part of the core group. And they give a lot of important feedback and perspective on decision-making and information. The core group keeps in touch through a smaller Facebook group, and we take turns moderating. We have a schedule, and we've each signed up for a day or two. And basically, we put things out as much as possible to the wider group. So we try to make opportunities for the wider group to meet frequently. Like we had a sign launch. There was that initial rally. We tell people when a rally is coming up, which many of us plan to attend, even if we haven't organized it. For example, the police just did a picnic, (laughs) a community picnic in an East End park, and many of us met to make posters and poster the park and attend the picnic with signs saying Black Lives Matter and to really make our perspective clear on what we think of police holding a barbecue for children in a neighborhood park. So we do a combination of meetings in person, communicating over social media, scheduled meetings versus addressing things that come up randomly. Like we had, I think, two days notice about the police barbecue. And so we tagged everybody, kind of organized it all over social media, and then met the night before. What's the significance, do you think, of EastEnders Against Racism being a specifically neighborhood-based anti-racism group? There's an amazing potential to that, where some folks have been here decades, some people have been here a couple years, If we have kids, our kids go to school together, some of us run businesses in this neighborhood, we're really connected. And sometimes when we're that interwoven, people don't talk about these, like the issue of racism and all the isms is kind of underground because it's painful to talk about it and difficult to talk about it and you know you're going to be interacting with people for a long time. So there's been something so beautiful and powerful and healing about going there. And having so many people say, I care about this, even if I don't experience racism. And we want to make a neighborhood where we are united against hate and everyone does belong. And what does that mean? How do we talk about that? How do we make that real and very tangible? There's a lot of growth in the conflict. So there's a lot of learning that has happened and a lot of learning that is continuing to happen and will need to happen because On the one hand, we all live in this neighborhood and we want to all belong. On the other hand, how do we talk about the differences of our experiences and knowledge when people of color experience racism? Like, what's the role of identity politics in a neighborhood group? And there's diversity in the group as well. So some people are coming from more of an identity politics perspective and others of us are coming from that less, more of a class perspective. So there's a real range of approaches, and I think there's something really important and valuable about continually seeking to understand the other perspective and accept it and work with it, even if it's not your own. What's your sense as someone who has been doing anti-racism work in one way or another for a long time now about what's distinct about the need for anti-racism in this moment? What do groups like EastEnders Against Racism, but also beyond that, need to be doing in this moment in terms of engaging in anti-racism work? My personal perspective is that this is a really important, precious window of opportunity to 
draw in and connect with the wider community, which is horrified by the explicit, obvious racism happening today, and which perhaps hasn't been as closely or immediately affected or aware of the way racism is embedded in all these you know, policy choices across so many arenas in Canadian society. So the overwhelming tsunami of discrimination faced by racialized newcomers when it comes to employment it has been an issue for decades, since the 80s when newcomers began being more predominantly racialized, and then that's precisely when it started taking triple and quadruple the amount of time to come back to your previous income level and work at your appropriate level of seniority. Like, that's just one small issue. People don't necessarily see that as racism. So I think that this is a really important moment. Similarly, there's so many issues like that in migration. You know, Canada's immigration policy, some people are temporary and precarious, and other people have a quicker route to becoming permanent. So, yes, we can worry about the really obvious, tangible things like supremacist posters, but I think people care and they realize, oh, there's a problem, so now let's work with each other to go, let's talk about how deep this problem goes how our society is organized into some people being more precarious and exploited than others. So my passionate hope is that we can connect to that care and keep learning together as much as we can so we can act together. I teach group dynamics as well, and it's a cliche to say this, but it's extremely true that the more diverse the group is, the richer the possibilities of the group. That's where tons of learning and growth comes from. So that does mean more conflict, and that's how the learning happens. <laughs> through the conflict, through how well you handle the conflict and listen to something you've never thought of before. So I think the, the potential for learning all of that broader systemic stuff is through helping our group be as diverse as possible and letting ourselves be surprised by each other. So not imposing like a rigid set of rules around how we talk, which perhaps might be kind of organized by identity politics. Can we build enough safety so that we learn this kind of broader systemic learning is really tough because people have really deep feelings about these sorts of things. And the slower we are to react and the more responsive we are instead of reacting, the more we're likely to learn this stuff from each other. And then the group is diverse enough as well that people hopefully will share their experiences, but we also add information from the outside, from the really good organizing happening in the GTA and beyond about migrant rights, etc. You have been listening to my interview with Rabia Murtaza about the work of EastEnders Against Racism. To learn more about what they do, search for EastEnders Against Racism on Facebook. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to suggest topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week.
Tschüss.